Hi, welcome back to Greatest Beats. I'm Ellie and this is the podcast where we talk to your favourite hard dance artists about the songs which have meant the most to them over the years. In episode 7 we talk to a legend of the harder styles about two tracks from his own career that are the most memorable to him and one from another artist which holds a special meaning for him. With a career that has spanned over 30 years he is cited as one of the pioneers of the happy hardcore sound. This Dutch producer is one of the most recognisable artists in the scene. Greatest Beats is delighted to welcome Charlie Lonoise. We are here today to talk about your greatest beats and we're going to start with one that is from way back in the day. It's from 1991 and it's RJ's Rule, Rave This Nation. It's a free concert from now on. That doesn't mean that anything goes. What that means is we're going to put the music up here for free. You have been in the music industry for oh, from a very young age, is that right? We just say, how old were you yeah. when you started? Well, my first passion was playing soccer, as every <laughs> child, you know. I did it really, really, I think, until my 15th. But in between, on my 13th, I went into a, yeah, a small club. And the small club was underneath of a church. And this, is, this was because uh, I met a friend of mine. He was uh, in the same class as I went to technical school. And his brother has like this, yeah, this, this mobile drive-in show, you know? Yeah. So he was uh, playing at uh, weddings, at um, uh, club nights from sport clubs and everything. So at one time he played at the sport club and I went into this, this small club underneath this church. And I was seeing those guys playing there with the perfect setup of the lights and the stroboscopes. And uh, I was 13 only and playing disco music, like 70s music, 80s music. And I was like really hypnotized. I I thought this is uh, what I wanted to do with my life, you know, At at first, love at first sight. Wow, at 13 years old, is so young. Because you do hear about people. I mean, I can think of people in Scotland who are DJing and they're very, very young. And I think a lot of the time you think to yourself, oh, they'll maybe grow up and do something else or move on. But you've done it all this time. And it's fair to say you were there at the beginning. I mean, 13, you were 13, what, nine, early 1980s. We're not going to say. We'll, we'll, we'll be kicked. <laughs> and so you were there before the start of things like Acid House. And you were there really, really before all of that. The song Raid This Nation, it reminds me of, when that scene exploded, when it became a big, big thing. How did you get from that 13-year-old playing disco and and saying, this is where I want to be, to having a song out that people really respect? Because when you look at the comments on that song online, people say, oh, this song, I remember this so well. How did you get from there to being a a pioneer of (laughs) of what you do? Um, so at this moment, when I really uh, fell in love with music, I realized that I wanted to go all the way for this, you know. So what I did, I created my own mobile driving show. I didn't have a driver's license or something like that. 
but I was only uh, bringing out newspapers and I earned like four pounds in one week or two, or five pounds maybe in one week. Mm-hmm. And every time when I uh, yeah got my salary, then I, I bought one, two records and some guilders. So in, in Dutch, they, that were guilders, not euros, but guilders yeah. at the moment. Some guilders I put aside just to buy like a turntable later on, you know? Yeah. And I did this with some, some friends of mine, which are, we were in the same class as I went to technical school. And together we started this drive-in show, this mobile drive-in show. And we went to schools and just asking if we could play there, not for money, you know, that was like, oh no, I, we wanted to play, you know, money is not so uh, uh, important. So uh, we had several big inspiration sources. At this moment in Holland, there were several radio stations, which were illegal radio stations, yeah. uh, like Radio City The Hague, uh, very, uh, very good radio stations. They played like really the Italo music and the disco music and, and music that you didn't hear on uh, national radio, you know? Yeah. So I was really hypnotized also by this, this radio station and the music they played. So this was really my inspiration at that time. Well, now I jump into the future. Then I started cutting with, uh, we, we used to have tapes, you know? So now we make music in computers, but at that time there were no computers. And I made my music with two records, two tape recorders, uh, with a mixer and just recording on one uh, tape recorder and recording a loop on another tape recorder. So there was a loop uh, driving all the time, looping all the time from one record. So with three faders, two turntables and one tape recorder, I mixed, uh, recorded on the other uh, tape recorder. So that's how I created my first own sampler, you know? Wow, that's that's amazing, guys. <laughs> that's amazing to hear how you did that before technology and before, you know, yeah. everything that we have now. That's incredible. I, I, wow, and you grew to love it. Yeah, that, that's only the beginning. And then uh, at a certain time, I had to go into the army because in Holland, not now anymore, but at that time, you had to go two years into the army. Oh wow! So I went uh, I totally were uh, taken off of the music because I went there sometimes for two weeks, one week, three weeks. And at a certain time I was thinking when I went uh, by train to the, to the base, yeah, maybe I have to do something with my life. And I studied a little bit like electronic, electronics. So then at that moment I saw a uh, commercial in television that said, step into the world, which is called uh, the Marines. So I thought, wow, this is great adventure and like this. So I went to the Marines. And I could stay there all my life. I'm now 54. In one year, I could re- retire. It was very different. I yeah, stayed there for two life. years, but I felt really in my heart that this was not my, yeah, my future. I didn't like doing with weapons and everything. And I think war is something we don't need. So yeah, I was absolutely. really with music in my heart. So I, uh, I quit there. And then I came back into uh, society. And I earned good money, like in pounds, maybe like uh, 5,000 pounds or something like that. And I bought my own home studio and I was living with my parents at that moment still. So it was like I was 21 and um, I created music with an Atari and just 
every day, every evening after my work, I went into the studio and just every day creating music, but there was no internet. So I had to develop it all myself. Yeah. And that's at a certain moment, RJ's rule uh, was created. Yeah. I like how you say that about how before the internet, the times when, when you, you could, I mean, it's so easy nowadays to be able to connect with people. I mean, as my entire career was basically based upon networking online and sending emails and, and, you know, sending like recording in Scotland and sending the files. But you come from a generation when you couldn't do that. And, you no. know, you it, it would have been a lot harder. And, and I think for a lot of people nowadays, it would be hard to imagine what that was like. You know, how did you get how did you meet people and how did you get to, to record labels and how did you become part of that scene at a time when it was a lot harder than it is nowadays? Yeah, I had I had big examples. Like uh, in Holland, there were several pioneers like Ben Liebrand, a very famous mixer. Uh, Lex van Koevoorden, he was also living in The Hague. So I tried to hook up with him just by sending him a message. And I, I knew where he was uh, working with his radio station still, Radio City The Hague. So I sent him a letter if he could play one of my mixes in his radio show. And he did. So wow. that was really, yeah, that was nice. I remember when I was very young doing that kind of thing as well. I don't know if you remember the DJ Tom Wilson from Scotland. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I remember famous. very yeah, I remember very early on um in the nineties sending him a, a tape. And it's really just waiting for somebody to come back and say, Yeah, I can help you. And that, that yeah, works. Yeah, that's yeah. It's really yeah. important that you have uh, something carrying you a little bit forward. Yeah, it's I think it's the idea of, you know, if you want something you have to really go for it and you have to work for it. You can't expect it to come to you. So I think I would no. say that's probably what you, you did in your early days. You really worked that's hard. And, yeah. and then that's so... RJ's Rule, where, where does the name come from that? Like, what, where was the name RJ's Rule? Well, it's very simple because uh, my name is Ramon Jacques Rulofs. Oh, oh and yeah. And so the R of Ramon and the J of uh, Jacques, the French name Jacques, Jacques Cousteau. And yeah. then Rulofs, I just cut it off like Rule, R-U... L-E. What are your best memories from those early days? Because 1991 was a year when dance music as a genre was exploding. Let's say after 89, 90, dance music was becoming this thing. You know, you were having these raves that were illegal raves. People were just dancing in fields. <laughs> and, and you know, yeah. there was, I think there was, an, in the UK, for example, there was an act came along where they banned anything with a repetitive beat. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard about that, the the songs that had the repetitive beat of, of a certain BPM, any music like that yeah. was banned. So you were right there at the heart of that. What are your memories of that early rave scene and that early rave time around that time of this song? Yeah, it was really underground. I mean, in the beginning, there was a club in The Hague called uh, LADS, L-A-D-S. And this was really a club which had a very bad name, you know, because people were taking drugs there and everything. And uh, yeah, a lot of people did, but a lot of people also didn't. Uh, but there was a very big shift in how people experienced dancing and dance music. So there was that, like the first house uh, tracks like D-Shake with Ya, KLF, all those kinds of things. The essay things, but also the Detroit house, which became very popular uh, in the underground at that moment. And... What happened was that people were dancing alone instead of they were dancing with uh, this handbag in between each other, dancing and shame ashamed of uh, doing something else that 
is not uh, familiar, you know. And yeah. this this club and also this uh, warehouse raves and also the big bigger raves, which came like one year later, they were very, um, yeah, they changed a lot in the world of how you experience dance music. So the most beautiful things that I, I remember is that when I first released Arjes Rule Raiders Nation, I always bought my records in uh, three record stores in The Hague. And one of these record stores were up to organizing a rave. This rave was called Rave the City. And I came in there at this record store and the owner of the record store, he organized this party. And I said to me, hey, Ramon, you see this poster with, with the name Rave the City on it? I said, yeah, I saw it also in the city. He said, yeah, you are going to play there. I said, what, what do you mean? He said, you are going to play there. I said, hey, what, what do you mean? I said, well, like I say, I want you to play there. I said, what? You want me to play? Why me? You know? He said, no, you make very good records. And uh, you also played in several clubs in The Hague. You're a big name here. And I didn't realize, you know. So he said, you're going to play there. I said, okay. Okay. Well, okay. Then I'm going to play there. So <laughs> at once, my territory moved from playing at clubs just for like a maximum of maybe uh, three, four, five hundred people to at once playing a rave for 6,000 people. So I was like, wow, what's happening, you know? And that, that was for me, like, I, I can imagine, I can remember the first time when I went into this hall and took place after the turntable, uh, behind the DJ booth and the turntables. I saw on a tape, on a videotape afterwards, that my hands were like this, you know? Yeah, so nervous. But I can yeah. imagine how it must have felt at that time to get that break and to, to take that big leap to such a big event. You're from The Hague, aren't you? So, yeah, and your own hometown to get that massive jump up must have been so exciting. That must have been such an exciting time for you. And, and, <clears throat> and to have those memories of that time of your life, I think we're at a time now where everything about the 90s is coming back and being glorified. And, you know, you see it in the fashion and the styles. You see it in, in theatre. You see it in films, you know, with films like Beats, for example, which is about 1994 sort of rave scene. And you lived it. You, live, you have those memories and it must be great to have those memories and to look back on them. You came to the UK as well and you built up a, a following all over the world as well. Do you have a lot of memories of the UK, those early raves in the UK? We, we didn't play too much uh, in England, so in the UK. Yeah. I think we only played like three times there. Really, yeah. Yeah, Scotland we yeah. played many times. Yeah, we, yeah. we played in Scotland many times, Fubar. And also at the Resurrection and yeah. uh, in, 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 in Glasgow, other, other kinds of clubs, but also in, in Ireland. But in yeah. uh, like England, we, we didn't play too, uh, too much, maybe three times. Yeah, the whole UK is kind of divided in their sounds. Yeah, the, the south of England is more of a breakbeat, um, yeah. urban kind of sound, whereas in Scotland it's always been a little bit harder. <laughs> so yeah. definitely, yeah. So that leads us nicely on to your second choice, which is an epic track even if people don't know who you are they will know this song and it is wonderful days which yeah. is by you and mental theo Now, 
Now, this song, I'm from this generation. When this song came out in 1994, I was 12. So it was a big thing. (laughs) I remember being at high school, happy hardcore, being everything we listened to. And and this was like one of those songs. But when I was, when I was 18, 19, it got re-released. And so I was now of the age to go clubbing and it became this big thing again. So it seems to have taken this, sorry, I could talk about this song all day, but I'm going to let you tell me all about how you and Theo came to be, how the song came to be, your, your memories of it. Why is this a greatest beat for you? Yeah, well, like I said, I was playing at this race and at a certain time, uh, people called me if I wanted to play on Mallorca uh-huh. for six weeks. That was in 1992. And I said, yes, I want to play there six weeks long. Really good time. Really good time. So every day playing there. And after I came back from Mallorca, I started my own record labels, uh, Simple Symphonies for the Mellow House and also Master Maximum Records for the, for the Hardcore. And in November of 1992, we had this reunion party in the Jaarbeurs in, in Utrecht. Yeah. Uh, it was a big, big event. And also Theo was playing there because he had also played at Mallorca. So uh, we met there and Theo came to me and said, hey, you are uh, Ramon, you are Arjas Rule and Charlie Lonois of uh, Creating Speed City and all those records. He said, I'm very, uh, I'm a fan. I play these records all the time. I said, well, cool, man. He said, do you have your own studio? I said, yeah, I'm own studio. And do you have uh, labels and labels? I said, yeah, I have very, very good ideas, but I don't know how to work them out. Shall we do something together? I said, well, that's, that's perfect. And then he gave me a call. And uh, I think one or two weeks later, we were in my studio working uh, on tracks. And I had so much fun working with Theo because it was really like laughing all the time, you know, it was more fun than we were working together. So, well, in, in the meantime, Theo was really good with creating covers of the records we made. Uh, he was commercial, very good. So within maybe a few months, we were asked to play in America on the east coast of America. And it was not as it is at this moment, like big raves and it was really underground. So we were playing there together with Adam X, with Frankie Bones, uh, with Lenny D, Frankie D, uh, Ralphie D. So we were really into this uh, Brooklyn underground scene. And I think the maximum of the crowd of which we played in front of was like maybe 500 people but also 25 people in Washington. But it was really much fun, you know, because we didn't earn money, but they paid our flight and they paid our hotel rooms. And in the meantime, we created pictures and movies, which we uh, used commercial within our next record sleeve, but also in videos. So so at a certain moment, we were playing more outside of, of Holland than we played inside Holland. And well, after one year, then it became that we were playing also very much in Holland. But from all the countries where we went to, to uh, Germany, there was the rave scene with Marusha, Westbam, uh, DJ Dick, Hard Sequencer, and uh, Mark O, that kind of records. And also in the UK with the breakbeats, and also in, uh, in Holland with the hardcore, we mixed those styles all together. And at one certain moment, we created a record which was called Life in London. And this record with the pianos and with the breakbeats and with the small samples in it and also with the crowds in the background, it was really an underground hit in Holland and was also played on national radio. 
So this was really our breakthrough. But the problem was that we didn't have time to invest more time in uh, working on our brands and everything. So this record became only a small hit in the national charge. And we were called then by a very big uh, company in Holland, which is called uh, Polydor. And at that moment, uh, Andrea Bocelli was there. Abba was there on the contract. Uh, Marco Busato, a very big singer in Holland at that time. And they asked us if we wanted to come into their dance company. So they were busy creating a dance company within Polydor Records. So we said, yeah, let's do it. So uh, they were also licensed to uh, Motor Music in Germany, which is the label of Marussia, West Bend. And we thought, yeah, we are on the right spot, right place, right time, you know. So after, um, yeah, after a few months, Theo and me went into the studio and at a certain point, uh, that, that was really great because we were just sitting around a little bit in the studio and nothing came out really. Theo went home. He went to his place of birth, which is in the south part of Holland, and they, they drink a lot there. So Theo <laughs> went to, to a bar at night and he came yeah. at home and he was like, oh, very sick. So he couldn't <laughs> sleep really. And he went to his studio and he put on a record, but th the record had to be played at 33 rounds per minute, you know? But yeah. how do you call it? Um, he didn't see that he was putting it on 45 rounds per minute. So it was too fast. <laughs> so this record was from Tony Ronald. And normally it had to sound like a pound love of dude at last. But when he put it on, it was like a pound of love. <laughs> so then he thought, wow, this, is, this, this sounds great. So in the middle of the night, he, he called me and he said, Ramon, listen to this. Hear what I have. So he played me the record. <laughs> This is a big hit, man. This is a big hit. Come to me and we're going to, we're going to, we're going to work on it. So say that was four o'clock and at 11, he was in the Hague again. And we were working on this track. And within one day we had the radio version ready within uh, the next week. We had the hardcore version, the Rotterdam mix. So we uh, released it on Master Maximum Records and it was a bomb, you know, like really selling. I think I sold, I think in, in vinyls. Uh, 27,000 copies of uh, Wonderful Days. And Polydor released it also on their label, on their dance label, which we licensed to. And I think we sold there about half a million uh, records of uh, Wonderful Days. Uh, only the, the Maxi CD. Yeah. It's an amazing track. It's one of those tracks that, like, I said this to someone before as well. You know, you have these songs in your life that they follow you everywhere. The, the ones that remind you of good times, you just never take them off your iPod. And that's one of mine. That's one of the ones that reminds me of good times and having fun. And it's it's amazing the influence that song is. Like I did say before, you can say to somebody, oh, you know this song, even if they don't know you, they know your song and they know it's massive. I don't know if you realise this, there's a musician in the UK called, well, he's worldwide as well, called Jerry Cinnamon. Have you heard of Jerry Cinnamon's cover version of Yeah, your I think song? so, yeah. 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 <laughs> and he did, and he, even he said I noticed an Instagram post from him where he's he plays it on stage, he mixes it up with disco land and he does it with his guitar and he said that his hey, memory of that oh, <laughs> yeah. That's it, yeah. And his memory of that time is where he gets that from is that he remembers being young. This is about my age. He remembers having a tape and it had that song on it, Wonderful Days, and it had Oasis, Champagne Supernova or something like that. And it's all part of his memories. 
I had so much fun when I was just searching for this episode, looking up on your days in the 90s when you're at the height of your success. Your videos were epic. The promo material that you had in the 90s, the image of you and, and Theo and like that whole the dungarees and dancing about with the cap and topless, it just took me way back to that time. And you must have some epic memories of all of that time. It was really great traveling through the world. Like, yeah, at the time that Wonderful Days was released and was really a big hit, we we went to Australia doing tours there, like uh, the first time three weeks and the the second time one month, but also traveling all through Europe, most of the time in Germany, in Scotland, but also outside of those countries. It was really, really much fun. And um, yeah, golden time. In in Scotland, really, they have really good, good crowd. But also in Germany, I was playing uh, three weeks ago, I was playing in Germany in the north part. And also this crowd went really totally crazy. Unbelievable. It didn't change. And there are like more generations coming up, you know. But when I was playing there, there were like uh, three generations mixed up together and just partying all the time. Really great. Yeah. Wonderful Days got re-released in 2001 as Star Splash. Was that you that was involved with that or was that a cover version? No, it was me out? involved with that, uh, yeah. together with uh, Frankie Tunes and also with the producers of uh, Cosmic Gate. We created oh, this uh, 2001 version, yeah. Yeah, you must be really proud of that song and the success that it's brought you. Yeah, really, really. In 1999, at the height of your success, you actually went through a hard time that changed your life, really. Yeah, um, I started in uh, 1996. Then I felt that the, um, like this, this really uh, artist scene, which I call a DJ scene, artist scene, we changed from just playing, just playing, you know, just doing whatever you want and uh, just enjoying the DJ uh, life from signing a record deal with millions of guilders involved and yeah, just doing like 350 gigs a year all around the world. And yeah. from only playing from like being creative we had to be creative you know like we signed a contract so we had to work on one album a year four singles a year every year three years long and i felt really a lot of pressure so i was the one who was going into the studio but also going on tour so i feel i felt really on my shoulders so at a certain time i went into a, a very a busy period was the end of 1996. We had like 35 uh, gigs in uh, 14 days all through Europe. And I was playing in my hometown at that night and I didn't feel felt too well. So like I had some pain in my left arm and also some pressure on my breast. And But I had to do two gigs, one in the south part of Holland and one in my hometown. So I tried to catch a little bit of sleep in the car because a friend of mine was driving me. And we went to this club in Holland, it's called the Asta. And I can remember it very well. I was standing there on this stage and I said to Theo, with every word I say, I feel I feel all the power out of my body flowing away, you know? So we did three records and I said, I think I, I had to I go in to pass out, you know? So I was walking through the side of the stage and before I, I came there, I was just like, Ooh, like going out, really out. And after a few seconds, I, I was awake again and I was lying there on the stage and... Uh, well, the music stopped and my brother was there, Theo was there, a friend of mine was there, also the technicians were there. And also after a while, uh, an ambulance came there and they took me away to uh, the hospital. And I, the strange thing was that I was laughing in myself from, ha, that I also experienced this, you know, like, whoa, what's happening, you know? And 
well, I went to the hospital and this, uh, this doctor, he said, what are you doing? Said, yeah, I don't know. Just, and talking and talking, he said, well, I don't think you are burned out, but I think you are yeah, really exhausted. You know, you have to take your time off and just, and I said, yeah, but I can't, you know, because I have so many gigs one year up front or maybe one and a half year up front. I cannot take off. I have also people working for me. So went home again, took three weeks off and then I started. But something changed in my, uh, in my mind. I knew that I had to change something. And what I always say, when you are on the bottom, there is a lot of space. So when you are on a bottom, you can see a lot of space. So my brother, he was boxing. He was really into sports. And he said to me, why don't you come with me and uh, sport, you know, boxing, just sweating a little bit. I said, yeah, good idea. Let's do it. So I went boxing and I straight noticed that after maybe two or three times that my body yeah, really went well with it. So sweating, that there was not so much pressure anymore. I became more self-confident and I felt really good. So the life of the, of the DJ was, well, it was, was good, you know, it was no, no problem anymore. So two years later, I kept on boxing three times a week and two years later, in 1998, my stepfather died. And that was a really big shock for me because uh, when I was 19, I already lost my biological father. And I did that really, how do you call it? Um, at the moment when it? my... Hmm? You didn't really deal with it? No, that what you, you no, were trying to say? Yeah. that's it. I really did not deal with, with this when I was 19. So when my stepfather died, then this bubble came up again. And I thought, what is going on? You know, why... Do people which you love die? What is living? What is dying? I didn't understand it anymore. So it was like I was sending out a question to the universe. And the answer came within a book not much later, which I was reading. It's called Zen and Management. And this was about two German managers which did a like a retreat in a Japanese temple. And I never had anything with, with reading books or meditation or yoga or whatever, you know. But this book, I just read it in one breath, you know, like reading it and I became so much energy out of it. I didn't know why, but now I know why. But at that time, I didn't know why. But these two German managers, they went to this temple one half, so six months, half a year, and they wrote out this book of it. And they were just describing what uh, the basal life is about, you know, like being out in the nature. The only thing which divided those managers from the outside nature, the outside world, was only a, a paper of rice, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, and I, I was reading about meditation, standing up early, like four o'clock in the morning. And normally I went to bed uh, at this time. Mm -hmm. So I thought I, I had to learn this, you know. So I went to, uh, to, to look for more books in the bookstore about Zen. And I found this folder, this uh, prospectus of a teacher in The Hague. And he started this course just one month up front. So I, I thought, okay, well, I can read about it, but I also can learn it, you know? So I, I called him and he said, yeah, I have several spots uh, left. So if you want to join, then come. I went to this course and started learning meditation. And... In the beginning, it was so hard for me just sitting there on a meditation pillow with 13 or 14 people and this teacher saying nothing, just sitting and following your breath, only following your breath. And all, all the time interrupted by all those thoughts which were going through my head. But yeah. 
I just kept on doing it. And at certain moment, I also recognized that there were certain moments of silence, like really deep silence. And I knew that I knew this, but I didn't remember, you know? Yeah. That's a really beautiful story. I, I, I always find meditation really hard. And I can, so I can really understand what you mean about the when you try to meditate and your head races with thoughts and, you know, it's hard to... But it's amazing that you found you found this from such a hard time. I think a lot of people probably in the, the music scene probably feel overwhelmed by how much pressure is on them and, you know, how much work they have to do. And then it's that constant expectation of this 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 and letting people down and and you I think it was very brave of you to say no 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 something needs to stop here no something needs to I need to get better I need to improve and you've done that what you do with your meditation and things. yeah you know the, the the DJ world and the, the the world of artists or politicians is really a macho world you know and mm -hmm. at this time when I was went into this meditation I felt very vulnerable because something very simple, very small, like the, the breath is where I became my energy from. And the breath for me is like, it's very small, not so important, but in the end, it's the most important that you have. Yeah, absolutely. There was a time I used to look into my father's eyes In a happy home I was a king, I had a golden throne those days are gone, now the memories on the wall. I hear the songs from the places where I was The third song that you chose was by Swedish House Mafia and it's Don't You Worry Child. Now, why is this song important to you? What What is the meaning of this song in your life that means so much to you? Yeah, well, I never heard this song until like maybe two years after they made this song. So oh, wow. um, uh, I heard it and really it hit me like, like a train, you know, like, like really deep into my soul. Because this, this text, what they talk about, what they sing about, is like everybody recognizes himself in it. And for me, it was like uh, at this moment, I had several things which I had to deal with, with my father and everything. So when, yeah. When this song came to me, yeah, it was really like I had to cry so much. And even now, sometimes when I play it, then I can feel the same emotion. Yeah, when I heard it the first time. Yeah. And that's, that's is, why is I chose this record. It's like a guilty pleasure also for me. It's a great, it is a great song. And I think as well, you're right about those lyrics. I, I mean, mm -hmm. I think um, it is one of those ones where you just say, don't, don't worry you know, everything's going to be okay. And I think you live that in your life with what you do with your Zen and your meditation and so on. And I think also as well, it's one of those songs that, you know, you've looked at the lyrics of it and it's meant a lot to you, that lyric. But in a lot of ways, your music, when you look back over the decades, probably has that effect on, on people. For example, Wonderful Days has that lyrics, that text that everyone sings along to. The, it's one of those lyrics that means a lot to people. But also a lot of your other tracks as well. For example, there's a song Stars that you did years ago as well, which has a beautiful, beautiful lyric. And I don't know if you realised in the same way that you feel about Don't You Worry Child is probably you've had that effect on people over the decades as well. Would you say, would you say that's something you've realized or understood or is that new to you? <laughs> <laughs> you, you know what I mean though? Do, do you realize the impact that your music has had on, 
people not not, not really until three years ago three years ago Theo and me were asked uh, to play in uh, AFAS in Amsterdam this is a hall of about four and a half thousand people and uh, just doing a 25 years show because at that time wonderful days was 25 years ago in 2019 and they asked us to do a, a gig there so uh, we said yeah let, let's do it and so we made this video and we put it on national uh, tv and at that moment i think we sold about 25,000 tickets but only fitted 4,500 in this office uh, in, in Amsterdam. So this guy who organized the event, he said, yeah, I already thought that this was going to happen. So I also planned the Ziggo Dome So for this date. Wow. So then we went the next day to the Ziggo Dome and we made a new video and we said, whoa, you don't believe it, but our event is not going to happen in the AFOS, it's going to happen here in the Ziggo Dome. And even more, we're going to do two gigs on Friday and on Saturday. Then we sold even more tickets. We sold about 28,000 uh, tickets. So uh, this was really crazy time. So we could have sold out the Ziggo Dome three times, but uh, we chose to just do it two times, Friday, Saturday, and going on a tour in Germany, Holland, and in uh, Belgium. Yeah. Then we recognized what we did with the Happy Hardcore, with our songs. And that was the first time after 25 years I become conscious of what we were, yeah, all, all the time doing in the 90s. I was listening to your music on the way over here and it, it makes me feel happy. I think you have to be a, a hard, hard, cold-hearted person to not find your music happy because it makes you feel so good. Um, yeah. I just felt happy. I was like, yay, it's like summertime. And, <laughs> I just, and that's something that I think you should be proud of as well. How many people you have just made happy with yeah. your music. You know, you've yeah, lifted great. somebody up for the day. Maybe they've got a cold or maybe they're just not feeling very well and they say, okay, I'll put on some Charlie Low Noise and Mental Teal or whatever. And, and they just feel happier. I think that's that's a really beautiful thing to be able to say that you've done with your career, with your life from right. a very young age, with your with your music. You make people happy and that's something really yeah. to be really, really proud of, I think. Yeah, I've definitely. I've way to say that. Yeah, no, it's very true though. It's very true. Yeah. I was thinking as well about how you're pioneer of the happy hardcore sound. How much your music is the soundtrack to like people's significant moments of their life, um, and yeah. when they met their when they met their future husband or wife, when they yeah, yeah, first, yeah, the first rave they went to, you know. And I think that's something to be immensely proud of. And definitely, what do you think the future holds? Like when you look forward to the future future um as charlie low noise oh by the way i need to ask you that where does the name charlie low noise come from i was on the contract uh with this record company which uh released rj's rule uh -huh. and that was like maybe eight months of which i were on the contract there but they didn't pay me royalties so i went to a lawyer and he said well you can go anywhere you want because they had to pay you a long time ago so i said okay what now he said well you can just make your own records on your own record label under your own, uh, own name. But I was a little bit afraid, you know, by getting sued or something like that. So I was walking to my studio and at that time you had these cassettes, yeah. you know, and on one cassette that was like low noise reduction. So I was yeah. like, okay, low noise reduction. And the first thing which uh, popped into my head was Charlie, like Charlie low noise, no thinking about it, just only Charlie low noise popped into my head. And that's what I uh, was going to use under this pseudonym. Yeah, and a star was born. That's a really nice story to hear how that started. What do you think the future holds for you in your career yeah. and going forward? 
Well, just I'm playing uh, like 30, 40 gigs a year, just loving it still. This weekend, I will be in uh, Assen on the TT. It's a motor event. And then uh, on uh, Friday in, uh, in uh, Alphen aan de Rijn. And this is a party where they celebrate that the new uh, herring is coming in. Herring is the, is a fish which you eat like this. Yeah, the fish, yeah. On Saturday, I will be in Dublin. That'll be fun. Yeah. The, Irish are, the Irish are really fun, so... Yeah. yeah. Oh, you're, you're well, you're still well-traveled there and you're still keeping busy. Yeah, and, still, yeah. still, yeah. And I just, just, I, I love playing the music and not so much uh, uh, gigs as I did before in the 90s, like doing uh, yeah. uh, over 200 gigs is too, too much for me. Um, and a lot more clothes. I just kept thinking, man, was he not cold all the time? <laughs> <laughs> we, were, we were jumping all the time, so we were warm, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah. No, but yeah. it's it's an epic look to look back on and to have those those memories of that time and yeah. to see that image. So yeah. Next to the music, I also love to uh, to give the meditations. I'm now doing meditation almost 23 years, and I give meditation. I organize my own retreats in Holland. So that's one, what I'm going to do uh, the week after, organizing uh, my retreat in the east part of Holland on a farm. And uh, oh, yeah. 24 people will appear there. And this is really, yeah, it's, it's really hardcore. Not happy. It, yeah, it's happy hardcore. <laughs> yeah, it's happy really, hardcore. <laughs> yeah, it's a happy hardcore retreat. Uh, but the people love it because it's, it's, it's giving there so much uh, beautiful insights of who they are. And that's really, that's, that, that yeah. really means a lot to me. This has been Greatest Beats. I hope you've enjoyed the show. And if you have, don't forget to share and subscribe and tell your friends. Let them know we're here. I'm Ellie. It's been great having you. Join me next time for another three Greatest Beats.